Well, hello, Lighthouse family. How are you? This is Grant Combs sitting here with Patrick Cox. How you doing, Pat? Doing all right. Just had worship there. practice. That's pretty fun. That we did. People should come to church. It's a good time. It is. It is. And we're, we're having some fun practicing, getting ready, and uh, yeah, playing some good Get songs. to play the piano and the guitar and... It's awesome. I love how God like gave us like music is a weird thing, you know, like how about, <laughs> gotta, how about we make our voices in different pitches and like strings, <laughs> metal strings across this wooden box and see what happens. But somehow I'm we hit this thing. Yeah. yeah that's stretch right. out this piece of metal and hit it again. <laughs> that's right. And somehow we love it. And it's uh, what a gift, what a gift of worship and praise. Uh, so let's see what's coming up. we got the annual meeting this week. And we got Fourth of July coming up. You're just back from camp. How was yeah. that? Camp was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was up at Pilot Lake, Pilot Lake Wilderness Camp. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, yeah, just an incredible time. All the speakers did an amazing job. Right um, on. And kids were really affected. Yeah, like they they listened. They heard the word of God taught yeah. solidly. It That's was a lot cool. of fun. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, man. May God grow a good little youth group here at this church. Um, yeah, appreciate you doing that. And, uh, and so you're exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to go home and eat and sleep. That's, I'm barely hanging in there right now. Yeah. And I slept you're in doing this great. morning too. It was like, it's like, why am I this tired? I yeah. slept for 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're I doing only great. slept for 12 over five days. <laughs> that's right. That's why. <laughs> Probably has something to do with it. Man, we got 4th of July coming up and we're going to light off fireworks. And mm -hmm. have you seen all the signs? Yeah. That are like. Big you light five. it, we cite it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you light it, we cite it. Twenty five is it twenty five hundred dollars? Twenty five hundred dollars. So I kind of feel like we're gonna sit here in our parking lot and, and we're to be clear, we are not lighting the illegal fireworks. No, we sir. are safe and sane and piccolo peats and whatever, gonna have a good time. But our neighborhood does not share our love nope. for for the law. And so uh, there'll be some uh some, some big aerial fireworks displays. aerial <laughs> displays and then maybe we'll get to watch the policemen chase them around. I don't know. I was going to say, we're what, four blocks from the police station? Yeah, that's right. We're, <laughs> we're pretty safe. Yeah. All right, good. So that'll be fun. I uh, hope everybody comes out for that. Um, we uh, have Ron Sheffield on the podcast today. Yes, sir. And he, if you look up the word character <laughs> in Wikipedia, there's a picture of Ron. He is one of those. I, he's the first person everybody meets at Lighthouse. Yeah. Like the first time you come here, you're going to get a handshake you're going to get a joke. You're going to be pointed, hey, here's the coffee and welcome and all that kind of stuff. Um, we are a very welcoming church. And in mm -hmm. large part, it's the Sheffields yeah. like, who are doing the lion's share of the welcoming. Um, and uh, and Ron has a great story. Yeah. When you listen to Ron's story, I, well, I'll speak for myself. I feel like I've lived half a life and he's lived like four full ones. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, feel like I don't know how he packed all that stuff in there. It's a <laughs> lot going on. And um, at the core of Ron, he's just a servant. You know, he just yeah. loves the Lord and loves to serve people. And, you know, if I could tell a story about Ron before we let it roll, my first day here, uh, when my first office day at mm. Lighthouse, he came in and he said, hey... Uh, I, I go once a week and I visit the shut-ins. The, the, there were four ladies who mm -hmm. no longer could come to church for health reasons. And he said, I, I visit them on Mondays and pray with them. 
And then he said, I'll stop doing that if you want me to, but if it's okay, I'd like to keep doing it. And I was like, whoa, yeah, like that's the most amazing conversation I've ever had. Please continue, Please continue. to do that. Yeah. And he really has, he has a heart for just a heart for people and, mm-hmm. um, and we all benefit from it. So it's a fun story. I hope you all enjoy listening to it. And uh, if you have a story and you think, you know, it's not my life story, but it's a piece of something going on in my life right now that I'd love to come and talk about, we would love to invite you in. Uh, Lighthouse family to Lighthouse stories. So give us a call and it doesn't have to be an hour and a half. It could be 20 minutes of just, mm-hmm. Hey, what, what's your, what's your passions? What's your specialty? We, we always want to focus on what gives you hope, what gives you joy. Mm-hmm. So if you want to come in and talk about what gives you hope and what gives you joy, we'd love to have you. So give us a call in the office and, and we'll set you up so you can tell your Lighthouse story. But for now, let's listen to the great story of Ron Sheffield. Uh, hey, Pat. Play the bumper music. Will do. So here we are with Ron Sheffield. Ron, uh, I have been looking forward to having this conversation with you. It's hard for me because I feel like in the next hour, I want to synthesize the last three years of conversations. <laughs> We've had so many good conversations. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. You always say you're doing great. Uh, that's the life. <laughs> it's just such a good life. So this is on this podcast. We are going to talk about, we want to hear your story and we want to hear uh, what gives you joy, what makes you happy and, and, uh, what gives you hope you are, uh, joy and hope is something that you have apparently from the outside. You have a lot of, yeah, well, uh, I'm just, I always am happy uh-huh. everything every day. Uh, uh-huh. I, uh, I think I was raised that way. Uh-huh. I, uh, just enjoy, I just enjoy being. And you know you you showed up today. I need to. I wish this was, there was a visual piece to this. The hat is, oh, that's from Vietnam. That's an Army Vietnam hat, right? And you've got an OU uh, polo on. Yes. And and pictures from from playing baseball when you were a kid. Yeah, baseball and football. And I, I just saw the football pictures. And I, is that the cardboard helmet? That, that, mine was a leather helmet. I had taken the cardboard off, but that, <laughs> we several of the others on there was uh, uh, cardboard. The, the leather helmet was one of the coaches' helmet when he played high school, and it was leather. How old are you in that picture? 10, 11. And so, I, I mean, I have an image of leather helmets. I have, until I met you, I had no image of cardboard helmets. Well, the 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 city pay, we had uh, uh, two leagues, and there were a total of twelve football teams in uh, Lawton. And what we did is the city bought shoulder pads mm-hmm. with the uh, hard cord, hard cord on, and helmets mm-hmm. with uh, hard cardboard, and they were <laughs> hard cardboard. <laughs> well, they were they were reinforced. It was kind uh-huh. of. But you would go in and to going in the line about half about halfway through the the season, you would take your helmet off on the way back to the huddle, beat it out, and put it back on. And you did that every time you ran into the line, <laughs> just leading with your head. Every uh, well, yes, that's what you were taught to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was no concussion protocol. No, it was just go in there, son. 
Well, that's excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all those stories. Um, so let's let's start at the beginning. Where are you born? I was uh, born in Lawton, Oklahoma. Uh, I was uh, born in a house. Okay. Uh, the doctor came uh, along with the midwives. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was born on Tuesday, and Mom took me to church on <laughs> on Sunday, and from then on, Mom took me to church all the time. I forget who it was, but somebody had the same story, but they were Fenton. like born on Thursday or something. It so was Fenton. Uh, beat you yeah, by a Fenton. day or two. <laughs> I mean, even even that, it's a different time. They would never tell you take your newborn no. to a public place where there's circulating air or whatever. And the, and the fact that you know, Mom was up. And yeah. walking around and yeah, um, I spent many hours in uh, uh, the nursery there. Sure. I, I also uh, in the church. What uh, we had a Sunday night RAs. It's very similar uh-huh. to uh, what we presently have, uh-huh. and uh, uh, we would. Uh, go uh, about there were about five of us uh, all on the same football team that grew up together yeah and we would go to the park and we would roast uh hot dogs (laughs) you know that's something so how big a town is lawton well lawton was a uh is the third largest city in oklahoma it's a Right now, about a hundred. I gosh, I don't know, about one hundred seventy thousand or so, because Fort Sale is close by. So, did it feel like a rural growing up? Is there land to run and play, or is it the city? Or yeah, all of the local uh, area uh, city kids outside the town uh, got rode the bus in to come into the grade school where I was. Okay, so and, you're you're in kind of a bigger city. Yeah, uh, well, I was close to the edge of town, uh, okay. good sized city uh, mm-hmm. that you had to have if you had twelve football teams uh, in school. I guess great that's school. right. Yeah, but my mom and uh, uh, her f- side of the family were all farmers over in Duncan, so we spent a lot of time over there. Mm-hmm. I as I was growing up, I cut hay, baled hay, uh, cut wheat, uh, fed the cows. Uh, Every every Thanksgiving we had uh, we killed a cow and mm-hmm. a pig and mm-hmm. uh, we would take them home and we would have that would be our food for quite a while. Yeah, a cow will last. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of food on that thing. Uh, what'd your dad do for a living? My dad uh, was a mechanic. Uh, he had, uh, in fact, he always grew up being a mechanic uh, on a on an old Indian motorcycle. No way. And, did uh, you have did, Indian motorcycles sitting around? Uh, he got. He finally, whenever my sister came, the Indian motorcycle disappeared. Oof, that's a bike. Yeah. You 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 feel like Wolverine. You're riding that thing. <laughs> yeah. And but uh, he uh, worked for the Chevrolet place, and then built his own. Uh, then went into his own two car two car garage. Then he went to a three car garage, and then he built a significant uh, one with six and uh had huh. uh, shops in it so did he own all those shops he was the uh, proprietor he, he was he owned the last one he had mm. it built specifically you know i i thought this when when linda was in here too but man that that just sounds like america in a certain era like you really lived the american like midwestern life it's your your you know what i'm talking about yeah. like it, like your dad gets a job as a mechanic and works really hard and gets a bigger shop and a bigger shop and finally owns his own business and, and, um, playing football with the kids in the neighborhood. You know, one of the things that, that I'm even jealous of like that is it sounds like you're more connected to just the people in your neighborhood. We, uh, actually 
in the city of Lawton and in the city where in the part where I grew up, we listened to Oklahoma football. Mm-hmm. Every Saturday at one o'clock, we listened to Oklahoma football. As soon as it was and over, and when you say we, I'm talking about uh, the city, the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, actually, we. I would take uh, since I was the oldest in my side of the. On basically on both sides of the family, mm. uh, we'd t- go to the movies on Saturday mm-hmm. uh, because you would take your Coca-Cola caps. Yeah. If you had 10 of them, you could get into the movie. Wow. So I would take that, and I, we would, I was four blocks away from home, and I, I always made sure that we ended before the game started. Mm-hmm. And I could wa- when the game started, I could walk those four blocks and never miss a game. Never miss, never miss a, play. a single play because all the doors were open and everybody was listening to it. If you went into a store and during Oklahoma football, nobody would wait on you. <laughs> this it was just there. You just, that's what you did. But after the game was over, we all went to the vacant lot and we all played tackle football, rain, sleet, snow, or hail, or tornado, whatever. I mean, you're just laying out this picture. How old are you when this is happening? Uh, anything from seven to 15. So just as like a 10 year old dude, you are going to the movies in the morning. What are we watching? Like Lone Ranger? Uh, no, you watch Roy Rogers and Gene Entry and Lash LaRue and yeah, gosh. So you go see some cool shoot 'em up Western and then you listen to the college football game right. and then you go out to the sand lot or the field or whatever and and play football with your friends till dark and actually after i got my driver's license we all went to the football field uh, and we played on the football everybody in town there was probably 30 or 40 of us in two different you know and different teams huh. playing tackle football and the rain sleet snow or hail that is so fun i mean that just sounds like a fun way to it grow was up. great great way to live and your parents, and you're out all day, and your parents have some general idea of where you are, but barely. Uh, Mom and Dad knew where we were. Uh, they could, they would come and pick us up in a town even as big as Lawton. If you went to find out, as I got older and would skip school and go duck hunting, <laughs> my mom and dad would know about it before I even got yeah. home, and they would be telling me about it. Tattletales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no kidding. Um, okay, so were you close to your dad? Very much so. What uh, was he like? Uh, my dad was a person who was uh, always trying to help people. One of the things that he did a lot of the times when people came into town and their car would was down and they were trying to get, go to another place, dad was probably the only person in town that would go do it. And most of the time, he did not take money for it. Mm. Also, on my dad's side, uh, one of my uncles was a, a typical... Uh, oil man, mm. and he had spent money on Friday, and on Monday he was didn't have any. Mm. My dad would we would go once a month to what was Wichita Falls, but fifty miles away, where an aunt lived with a couple of my cousins, and I never knew why we went every month. And Dad would take two hundred dollars and give her and the family. Not the the uncle was out. M- in western uh, Texas, mm-hmm. but he would take money and do that. It took me a while until a couple of about three years there that I realized that Dad was keeping them alive, yeah, with the money, uh, and not with uh, 
like it just seemed like the right thing to do. There wasn't a sense of pride with him. My or... dad took care of everything. My dad took care of my grandfather, and uh, I had an uncle that was had a, a deformed arm. Huh. Dad took care of him. Uh, actually, Dad did all of that. Now, Dad never got past the 10th grade. Um, he went into the Army uh, to fly, made all the qualifications, except you had to be a graduate from high school to be a pilot. Huh. And he didn't. Uh, he didn't do that. Huh. Uh, there's a long story that's involved. That uh, uh, the day that uh, they were getting ready to ship him to England because he was a mechanic on a B-17, he was helping people over the the obstacle course. A guy pulled him off and broke his shoulder. Everybody else went to Europe. Dad stayed there, so he could come and visit us ever so often. And of course, there were two kids whenever the war was over, so he was one of the first guys to leave. Hmm. Uh, the war you're talking about world, world war ii so um so time stamp this for me like what year did you graduate from high school uh, 58 58 so during world war ii you're young grade school uh, or even younger than that i was uh in 1940 uh i, I but at night if 1945 when the bait war was basically going over i could still tell you every airplane that flew over i knew mm. i knew that's what i wanted to do so mm. so that's the key because what 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 base did you say is right by lawton uh fort sill and uh the, they would also uh do the one at wichita falls which was an air base so there were planes flying over uh, all the your time. childhood home and and even a few helicopters at that stage mm-hmm. <laughs> very few <laughs> so um so your dad enlisted when World War II started? Uh, he got drafted. He got drafted. Yeah. As a dad, he had kids and Two. and he was drafted. Yeah. And wanted to fly and that didn't work out. And so um, was he around the house for that time or was he stationed somewhere he else? He was stationed at uh, Fort uh, at, uh, at Wichita Falls. Okay. And on the weekends, he would come home and bring guys that were there. And they would bring food up, uh-huh. and Mom would cook food for them, and they would spend the weekend with us. They would come on Friday night and leave on Sunday, mm-hmm. and they would go back uh, back home. Um, the other unique thing about my dad is, since he didn't do, got it never passed the 10th grade, he was asked to be on the school board. Mm. He was not only on the school board, but he was the president of the school board for uh, four years. Hmm. And uh, uh, like Lawton Unified or something. Yeah. 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 So uh, apparently a smart guy. Well, he raised me. Of course, he had to be smart. <laughs> uh, he had to have a lot of wisdom. I'll tell you that. Um, we we need to. I have told myself before we started this, I told myself I'm not going to be a smart aleck. <laughs> When Ron, and, when Ron and I sit down to talk, because other people are listening. It's not just me and you this time. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. Um, so tell me about your mom. Were you was she close, were you close with her? Uh, very much so. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Dad uh, spent a lot of time working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mom uh, was an exceptional person who really cared for people. Mm. Uh, in the time frame, uh, the 1940s, early 40s, uh, late 40s, uh, that was a time when a lot of the hobos traveled on the trains. Oh, okay. They would stop in the town, and Mom had a rule, and the hobos had it posted, by the way, mm-hmm. that if you wanted something to eat, you could go 
to the eat. But if you came, you had to come to the back door, not the front door. To your house? To my house. And they would come, and Mom would always had sandwiches made for them. And, huh. you know, we never had any theft or anything. People just came uh, for that. Mom was on the, uh, you know, the PTA at school, took mm-hmm. care of all of hmm. us kids. Mom took care of my grandmother, uh, whose husband had left her. Uh, Mom had to work when she was in high school. Mom was the oldest of uh, four. Mm. And uh, hmm. so, uh, so she I'm, took care of people. So I'm trying to, like, can just trying to think what time we're in. Like, her parents split up during the Depression? Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, one of the, I mean, it that was just a very difficult time to hold a family together. Yeah. And um, maybe her dad felt some pressure or financial difficulties or... Uh, no, he just ran away. He just ran. Home. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so, so she's left the oldest kind of having to be the vice mom, take care of everybody and really grew a heart for caring for people. Yeah. My mother and my grandmother both cleaned up at the funeral home. Wow. That's uh, how they did it. Mom would go to school and then go to that, uh, back to the, whatever needed to be. And of course, if there was a big funeral, then she had to get everything set up and ready to go. And did she have any higher education? Not other than high school. Hmm. That's why both of them insisted that I go to college. It sounds like, yeah, they they didn't have higher education, but education was very important to them. PTA and school board and um, were they, was education kind of highlighted in your house, like helping you with homework and got to, got to achieve and have to get good grades and. No, they made sure I did it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so you. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have, uh, I have a, a, one sister that's next in line, and then I have a, a, another brother who in, was in line, and then the last one who was uh, in line. So okay. every two, about every two to three years, there was someone. My youngest brother was killed in an automobile accident in mm. high school. So, mm. Well, that'll... That's a huge event for yeah. a family. Yeah, it was. Um, Were you away at school when that happened? I was just gone into the Army, mm. uh, had gone through flight school, and got a call. And, mm. um, of course, all I had to do was tell the boss, I'm gone. And he said, you know, go. Mm-hmm. And we we went there. Uh, my mom and dad were uh, with my aunt and uncle in Colorado fishing, and my mom would never leave town after that mm. under any size, shape, fashion, or form. Mm. So <clears throat> what was high school like for you? Were you a lot of sports? No, um, I was very small. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I, I was 5'6". Uh, yeah. Barely 120 pounds. Yeah. Uh, soaking wet. Soaking wet. I played the intramural. Uh, I did play baseball some. I did play football some, but uh, I was significantly, um, I was fast, <laughs> but I wasn't quite fast enough to keep getting tackled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, that's high school football in Oklahoma is not like high school football most places. Yeah. It's, I it, still, a lot of us that were younger still played football on Saturdays sure. after the game. Yeah. And I would go actually go play with the football team. On uh, after Oklahoma played, I just was not fast enough. Or yeah, uh, yeah. So what were did you do extracurricular stuff? Were you on student government or? Yes, in, uh, I was uh, in student government. I also uh, that was primarily it. Okay. I, the Latin club I was uh, 
a member and then the because the, I was going to be a doctor and uh, huh. uh, the key club uh, there were just several variety of things that involved there so uh, student government and and education really because when you went to college you were focused on education right um, so when did the I mean I I really would like to follow this this path, you know, especially I, and it's especially interesting to me because I have kids kind of in that age right now, right. Where yeah. they're discovering what it is that God's going to do with them. So you, you were going to be a doctor when you were like 14. Yeah. Because, uh, yes. Uh, went in, in, in high school, ninth, 10th grade, uh, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, one of the counselors, uh, at the time that I was a senior in high school, that's when the Air Force Academy first opened. Hmm. And the, the teacher thought that I would be very well there. And uh, I, for some reason, that I didn't put my, my name in. So then what led you to Oklahoma? You went to OU. Yeah. Because where else would you go? Yeah, you know, you walk out on the field, that's like going to Mecca, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So you're, you're just, did you apply other places or no, no, it was, I'm going to be a sooner or I'm going to die right here. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, that's where actually all of my friends in high school, I had multiple friends, even though, uh, you know, I did not participate in football and basketball and that kind of stuff. It was just, I, everybody knew Ron, Ronnie, yeah. Ronnie is what they call me. So, and so what made you choose education? And although that's not where you ended up, that's where you were headed. I, in. I had a, a history, I mean, a math teacher that uh, huh. was very good and uh, I liked him uh -huh. and he was a farmer. And what I was going to do when I got out was to be a, a math teacher and raise quarter horses. Ha, huh. that sounds like a good life. Yeah. Yeah. And Oklahoma would be a great life. <laughs> it would. Yeah. yeah. And um, so you you start, you don't start ROTC. Uh, yeah. And at, uh, at OU, you had to go to ROTC the first two years because it was a land grant school. Is that still true? No. So you had to be ROTC right. if you're going to go to Oklahoma. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. And so what percentage of guys continued ROTC? Uh, probably about 40%. And so was that a decision that you made before you went to school? Uh, it, it doesn't sound like you had the army in view when you, when you started, you were thinking about quarter horses and math education. I, uh, the, whenever the you're you qualify and you get your dollar a day yeah. for, uh, OU was, uh, my junior senior year. Uh -huh. My, uh, what I told them I wanted to go to flight school and the ROTC, OU uh, Army gave me flight training, mm. and I got uh, training, and I got my private license uh, through, through ROTC. Of course, I had a two-year obligation mm -hmm. when I got in the Army. So was that the the impetus? That was like the, I want to fly. This is a way to learn to fly, and so I'll like yeah. stick with ROTC and do yeah. that. It was, it was, was it helicopters or airplanes that uh, you I fell flew in love with first? Well, anything that would get me in the air. You just wanted to be in the <laughs> yeah. air. Yeah, my, back then there weren't a whole lot of helicopters available. Uh -huh. I flew, uh, you know, the Champ 70C and the Piper. Uh, yeah. you, know, you just you just fly the, the old airplanes. They yeah. were fabric, <laughs> and uh, uh, I I got pretty good at. It. 
Yeah. They have like planes at Oklahoma that, that they train you on. And that's correct. Uh, that's a, I just don't know anybody who's doing that right now. Yeah. That's an amazing, that's an amazing plan. So somewhere along the way, there's a beautiful young lady named Linda. Yeah. Uh, that uh, we Linda was the uh, worked in the athletic department. Uh-huh. I was uh, in charge of the intramural for my fraternity, so I spent a lot of time uh, scheduling <laughs> activities and that kind of stuff. Um, the irony of it is that I met Linda my freshman year. Uh, another friend of mine, we both went outside, and he was dating Linda. <laughs> and I was dating this other girl, and I said, hi, hi, and then we left. And my junior years, whenever I decided to, to see uh, if Linda would go out for a date, uh-huh. and she did. And she, yeah, I mean, that poor woman made one bad decision, and here she is yeah, all these years later. It, one, she made several. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, they were all, all saying yes to dates with you. Um, so how do you, so you graduate from college. All right. In what year? 1962 and uh you do you you head for your two years right and at that point the plan is still kind of like do your two years and then start buying horses yeah and you know i'm not i'm not super familiar with when all the when vietnam really got going but was there a point where you you kind of looked and and said oh my gosh my life's going to be very different than i thought not until uh, 1965, so, 64. So was there a time when you made a decision, I can either get out because I've done my two years or I can re-enlist and help with this conflict or or were you not given that option? I was. I could have gotten out after my first tour in Vietnam. Uh, I, okay. But I'll be quite true with you. If, uh, if I hadn't have been married, I would have stayed when I went to Vietnam in 65 until it probably ended or something happened to me yeah i i enjoyed it i enjoyed flying uh-huh. i enjoyed a lot of the people that i met i trained a lot of people i saved a lot of people so you know and this like ribbon that like it seems like it started with your folks and really like it is the thing if somebody asked me about my friend ron it's your heart for service that is most prominent you know and so it sounds like that was something that maybe service in 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 the army was a natural outpouring of your desire to serve yeah i i don't know if you notice every time that we have something to eat i'm always the last person to eat Hmm. because the troops always get something to eat first Hmm. you always make sure that if everybody gets something to eat if you don't get to eat that's okay Hmm. um where's the where's the connection with Jesus through all this, like uh, you said, your you know your third day of life or whatever your fifth day of life, you're in church and go to church. All that is there a moment in there that your faith really becomes your own that you decide, hey, I actually want to live for the Lord. Well, I had been you know going to Sunday school. We had a reunion and I was three rows back, and they were we were doing an altar call. Uh, my teacher turned to me and said, "Ron, are you ready?" And I said, "Nope." How old were you? Oh, gosh, I was 12. Okay. So I said, uh, you know, I said, no, no, not now. Don't ask me why, but I suddenly got picked up by the, mm. by the shirt 
nobody there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I got from three rows back until I got up to the preacher. I had mm-hmm. no idea. Mm-hmm. But I was glad. That was the same day my sister was also bad, uh, accepted the Lord. Mm. So, um, And, you know, in the heart of a 12-year-old, the, I, I always, you know, I, I've worked with junior hires forever, and I, I noticed that, like, there's a lot of stuff going on on the inside, but it's hard to know how to change the outside stuff when you're 12, right? Like, was there a was there a change in your life? Was there a change in your heart? Was that something that developed over time? I, I really think that uh, I, I couldn't wait to get home. Well, my mom was there. My dad didn't go to church and didn't accept the Lord till late in his life, mm. but I couldn't wait. My sister and I were both running to see which one could tell mom first that we mm. accepted the Lord. Mm. So your mom was a believer. Oh, yeah, from day one. Yeah, and, and dad took a while. Dad took a while. All, all of us kids were baptized mm-hmm. uh, and accepted the Lord um, and the church. Um, I, you know, I didn't change uh, much I, I, other than the fact that I knew that, that the Lord had blessed me and that yeah. I was going to be... I just assumed that I was going to be his forever. Yeah. You know, I, I always think about like um, trajectory when I see a 12-year-old come to faith where, man, it, it looks like a small change right then because a 12-year-old still has to go to school and do their homework and, you know, make their bed and whatever they have to do. But like that change in direction makes such a huge difference as the years go, you know, just living for Jesus instead of living for yourself. I, uh, it, the the irony of it is that I told people at school, hey, I accepted the Lord. And, you know, mm. uh, there was no, in the school itself, there was no uh, Bible study or anything like sure. that. Sure. Yeah. But it's just a regular school. Uh, but uh, I would say that 80% of the kids in school went to church. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so. 1965 what's the decision how does the decision get made for you to go to vietnam you are <laughs> where are you stationed at the time we had a uh i had the finished flight school we had spent um uh, a year in um at fort benning georgia in the second uh, uh infantry division but the aviation battalion and also the army was a test flying testing what ended up being the first cav then it was the 11th air assault because i was a pilot out fresh out of school and had been flying hueys i spent time flying with them at night mm. uh, and, and during the weekends when they had that i flew h-34s uh which we were support of the ranger up at ranger school up mm. in the mountains ranger school in the jungle uh and the swamps of florida uh, and so I had a, a wealth of experience whenever I got the word. I went home in, um, gosh, March of 65. I got a call and said, uh, pack your gear and be ready to travel tomorrow. Wow. Do I, you have, is Ronnie born yet? Yes, Ronnie. Mm-hmm. All of my, all, <laughs> the irony, all of my kids were born and then the year left. before, <laughs> yeah. I went to Vietnam, yeah. and all of I did not see most of within six months. They were, uh, yeah. I was gone of their life. Yeah. Ronnie's was about the same. Uh, I always said, you know, uh, if we'd quit having kids, the war would end a lot sooner. <laughs> so, so 
I, I, it, was there an anticipation that you would end up in Vietnam? Not, not at that time. Okay, so you get a a phone call or a I got a phone call. Yeah, you got a phone call from the commander saying, "Hey, hey, Sheffield, pack your stuff. You're leaving tomorrow." Yeah. What's that conversation like with Ronnie and Linda? Well, Ronnie was really young. Linda saying, you're going where? Uh I said, I'm going. I don't know where I'm going or how long because I didn't tell you that. Oh, wow. Picked up the phone, called mom and dad and said, get here and pick up Ronnie and Linda and take them back. Um, Are you scared? Are you excited? This is what you've been training for. But what's going on? I'm just kind of, it's kind of matter of fact. Huh. Probably, I probably always knew that it was going to happen. Okay. Uh, we had had a couple of guys that were in the unit that had uh, had been to Vietnam and came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, not talking to them about that or anything like like that. Um, I didn't go that day. I went the next day. Mm. And the irony of it is, it's a heck of a way to start to go to Vietnam. We they flew us from here from Fort Benning to to uh, Fort Bragg for because the unit was that we were going into was assigned to there. And on the way there, we lost the throttle control. So the only way you could get down is shut the engine off and do oh. an auto-rotation. And oh. I thought, this is a great way to go to Vietnam. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Who was, who was flying? Uh, the, luckily, the instructor pilot was. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, they flew us up, and they were going to fly the aircraft back home. But there were four of us that went at the same time. And you were stationed in the same place in Vietnam. Yeah. So you had some... I don't yeah. know if buddies is yeah. the word, but you weren't the only person you knew. I, uh, for some reason, I guess I was a pretty good pilot. I got to be the instructor pilot for uh, that. Uh, and our unit was uh, one, it was an assault helicopter company. We went out in that, but it was also uh, flew all the VIPs. Mm. And I got, I flew most of those, mm-hmm. but just because of, I guess I, I guess I was that. I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I guess I was a good pilot. So three tours, yes. 65, 66, 67, 68, 71, 72. Okay. And the dead gum thing about it is you only had to serve a year. Two of those years, I had the the extra month in February, extra day in February. So I had an extra day I spent there. <laughs> you, they kept sending you on leave here. <laughs> think about that one extra day of combat pay, though. Uh, whoopee <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, you made a lot of enduring friendships yeah uh a lot of the it's uh, because when i went i was a first lieutenant uh then i uh, some of the ones that i went over with uh mm-hmm. also we kept in contact uh two of us went to Germany after the first tour in Vietnam, uh, the other one got out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I made that. Then I went back on my second tour. I was a captain. I had the platoon. Uh, that I took that platoon and carried them for six months. And then they had a problem with one of the other units, and I got sent over there to take over there and uh, made friends with those and still have contact with most of that group. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then my last tour, uh, I commanded a company. And when the, the Vietnam Helicopter Association has their meetings, I always they always look 
the people that work for me always look there. Mm. So, I mean, I, it's such a huge sacrifice. You know, I'm so just like I just hearing you tell stories. I think, man, I don't know if I had it. I would have had it in me. In fact, I'm pretty sure that you're four times the man I've ever thought about being. And and, you know, I have I have been so impressed. And there's we are so blessed by a lot of men like this in this area and at this church where there's a commitment to family, there's a commitment to country, and there's a commitment to the Lord, all just are wholehearted. And um, I, I just, I guess I'm, I, I've never heard you talk about, was there a moment after that first tour where you thought, I'm just going to go buy some quarter horses and teach math? Or was it a sense of responsibility? I need to finish this? Or what caused you to continue I the career? I just was enjoying that. And the fact that I was going to Germany. And most of the time when you went to Germany, you had three years. Oh. So I would decided, hey, this is all right. Okay. I go to Germany. And we lived, of all places, in Munich. Really tough place to live. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, 13 months, <laughs> I was back in Vietnam. What was your job in Germany? <laughs> uh, Everybody in my unit, we were in the the second of the ninth cav. Mm -hmm. uh, I was. We had taken it, all the people. We had seventy five. We were supposed to have seventy five officers. We had thirteen. Mm. We were six flight pilots. I was the only guy that could fly the H thirty four. I every day I had to go out and every, I'd start it and run it. Um, I was also. Um, Became a general's pilot. Huh. Uh, I was also a headquarters troop commander. I was the the, the cav uh, the flight commander, um, the maintenance officer. I did everything there, and uh, we started getting people in towards the end of my tour that uh, had not gone to Vietnam yet, that were going to spend a year there and then go to Vietnam. They, um, I, I did, I trained all of them. You, uh, I mean, I hear you talk about student government in high school. The first picture you showed me today was of the football team, and you're the captain. You are assuming command for a lot of your, like, you, you're you're highly skilled, and so there's some excellence there. But also, you just are good at command. Like, leadership is something that either by study or, or natural inclination, you have a skill in. Um, what makes a good leader? Like, how do you, well, how do, you do that well? You, you take care of the troops. Uh, and that's always been the case. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, uh, I knew how to do that. I watched my dad, and mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, and and I got good training uh, because uh, a lot of the people that uh, that I dealt with when I was back in the states initially, those were longtime army aviators, mm -hmm. and but because I was the young second lieutenant. I got all of the missions to fly, but I usually flew in that time frame with one of those guys who was was very uh, very helpful, and they I just I just did the job that had to be done. Like you care about people, yeah. You see people not as an instrument for your own kingdom building, but as people to be cared for. That's the that's the name of the game. Yeah, yeah. I firmly believe that. I I, uh, I take care of people for even even now that yeah. uh, I have really no contact other than the fact that they're up the street or that's a lady up the church from the church or um, next door neighbor or whatever. Yeah, 
Yep. And is that a function of the way you're raised? Is it a function of your faith? Is it just something that's in you? Is it a combination of all that? I would answer that. That's all of the above. It's all of the above, yeah. yeah. Mom and dad did it. I I, I watched them. I, I did it. Uh, you know, and you become, if you've got people under you, you have to take care of those people. And I, I learned to do that, too. Yeah. So you're... Your Vietnam stories are probably most of them for another kind of podcast. <laughs> That's, that, that might, I, I love those stories, but maybe we need to... I would like for you to tell a couple, though. Uh, tell the story about um, the whiskey and... Oh. Yeah. Uh, it, in the unit, you had a certain number of people that were on uh, standby to go fly. And usually that was a situation where... Uh, somebody was in trouble, they needed to be medevaced out, or you had to go provide gun support, or you had to take ammunition, whatever. Um, uh, I, it became very obvious that I did not was not a drinker. Uh-huh. And uh, I never, don't get me wrong, I drank very, very little uh, any time. Uh, if, if I drank, a, a, I just didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't like it, you don't do it. That's right. So... I kept getting these wake-ups to go do the missions. Hey, Ron, you need to wake up uh, and go take this because I've been drinking. And that went on for about six months. So and people are coming and shaking you in your bunk and going, it's my turn to fly, but I'm hammered. I can't do it. you got to take it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was, you know, I, my, I was getting exposure twice as often as anybody else. Yeah. Of course, the good Lord's protecting me, but yeah. twice as often. Yeah. And the, the situation was that I said, enough of this. Yeah. So I went to the PX and bought the cheapest rot guts you could find. It smelled terrible. And what I would do at night, I would take a cap of it, pour a little bit in it, and pour it on my chest. So that when somebody would come in, they would say, hey, Ron, you, you, you need to go. No, I've, I've been drinking. I can't do it. So it didn't take but about maybe two to three weeks. Nobody ever came anymore. <laughs> I, I love that. Like, how do I, how do I act like a de- degenerate even <laughs> without being a, <laughs> a degenerate? That's a good story. Um, is there anything to be learned from something as terrible as as Vietnam? I mean, obviously, there's horrors and horrors, and um, it's it, you know, um, you got. You get somebody gets wounded in an aircraft, or you pick somebody up that's wounded, and just because it's around you, got the, the wind blows and you get blood all over you, and yeah. and it's people say you can't smell blood. I can tell you, you can smell blood. It'll yeah. rot. Yeah. Um, and you um, and you see people that get shot down, and and you got to go get them, and you have to help other people. It's it's war is hell. Yeah. For lack of a better word, it really yeah. is. So, I mean, so that's why it's almost jarring for you to say, well, I was enjoying it. It's the, it's the caring for people that you enjoyed. That I enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, and you're an excellent pilot. You, well, I got, I got back. So I get this. I'd consider it an excellent pilot. <laughs> well, and how many flight hours? 2,200 hours of combat time. 2,200 hours of combat time. What's the record? Oh, there's there's a couple more people that that uh, did that. If I had not gone back, uh, my unit stood down. My Cobra unit stood down when they were leaving places to go. Uh, everybody was tr- going down. 
uh, I was supposed to go on the ground as a ground assignment mm. in the first cav. The day that I was supposed to go over there, uh, after I'd stand down my unit, they got orders to go. So I ended up being the secretary of staff mm-hmm. uh, for the 1st Aviation Brigade. I flew uh, probably once a week, mm. not all of it combat. Some of it was from point A to point B. It takes so-and-so to such-and-such place. And what what is... um. What's being a Christian look like in a combat zone in the late sixties? Is it is there are there brothers to pray with? Is prayer part of your life? What's that? Uh, there are brothers to be played with, you know, mm-hmm. to pray with. Um, uh, the irony of it is, is that my first tour, uh, I got to do the assignment of all the officers in my platoon, and I always went to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It was me the chaplain's aide, and the chaplain, and that was about it. However, mm. there were other Christians there that I just, at various times, I think the ones that I had the most uh, were my second tour. Mm. There was a, 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 a very strong group of fellow Christians. Hmm. Linda talked about um, writing letters back and forth. <laughs> what did it mean to get a letter from her? Well, um, <laughs> If if I didn't get a letter, sometimes letters came in four or five. Yeah, that's what she said. A bundle. Yeah, yeah. If I didn't get a letter by the fourth time, the the uh, the mail sergeant would ignore. He would run away and hide any time I came because <laughs> I was not a nice person if yeah. I didn't get a letter. Yeah. But uh, we did letters. We got increased it as time goes on. We had took and made tapes oh, and cool. sent tapes back and forth. Yeah. And um, what's it like missing the family there? Is that is that one of you the know, toughest uh, parts, or is it that you're so immersed in what you're doing that that's kind of all both. that's on your mind? Yeah, uh, you know, at Christmas time was mm. um, Linda sent a Christmas tree that mm. uh, that that was I think Christmas and actually wedding anniversaries, mm. uh, birthdays, those yeah. type things uh, you miss most. Yeah. Um, how do you handle those? Do you, especially like in the movies, the guy goes to the local bar and you know, works it out that way. How, is there it was, just... there's bars there. In fact, I was, because I didn't drink, I yeah. guess who got to run the the club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, there's just no good way to you try to stay busy. And you just, you, you just, you, you look at it, you put it in your mind and you go. Mm-hmm. What's coming home like? Is it difficult to, like, I know I, like when I was a youth pastor, I'd go for a week at camp and it was hard to assimilate back into the house. You know, I can't imagine being away for a year and then coming back and, you know, just being a family guy. And is that a difficult transition? Um, Yeah, it is because Linda has been the boss for the kids. Right. And then as they're getting older, um, Sharon, my daughter, uh, she wouldn't have anything to do with me mm. whenever I came home. Mm. You left me. Mm. <laughs> and um, It's hard for a kid to process that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, within probably a month, mm-hmm. that kind of went away. And we did things together So whenever I first got home. So how important is just your commitment to marriage in that part where, okay, this is going to be a hard month, but we're in this together and... We never had any problems in that yeah. regard. We still don't. Yeah. Yeah, you guys get along. Yeah. You guys are fun 
oh, we play, harass each other. You, you all harass, the time. you harass each other. You obviously love each other. You, you know, you serve together very easily. You, you're very hospitable. You love having people at the house, and and uh, it's inspiring. It's cool. Yeah, uh, we we just um, we just enjoy helping people, talking to people. Uh, particularly a lot of the military because they're here usually for a month, a year, a year yeah. or maybe two years, depending on where they go to school. Uh, we used to do that when Fort Ord was here. Mm-hmm. We would have people over to the house that uh, uh, we just give them something to do, particularly if they're a bachelor or yeah. a single woman. Yeah, They don't have anywhere to, to go, and we we go do it. Um, we did the, the kids' at uh ucmb yeah and uh we kept those kids for a long time and in fact two of them are here at the church yeah they are okay so we're we're not running short on time but i want to make sure we have good opportunity to talk about space and the hubble and all that kind of (laughs) stuff so so get me from so after your last tour of vietnam you got straight out of the army i i I went to um, the air force academy i had a squadron cadets for three years then I came here, and uh, there was an organizational effect in the center and school. I was in it, uh, was the XO and the admin officer. Uh, and then I retired in 82. Um, I went to work for a small company for two years. It went out of business. Then I went to work for Lockheed. Um, Did you know, I, I want to stop you and say, like, before you got there, had you heard of the Hubble telescope? Nope. <laughs> had anybody? Like, it, well, there were, they were, there was plans, and really uh, only the if, kind of the scientists knew, and some of the uh, people that were just beginning to do a lot of the work on it. So am I right to say, like, at in 1982, the Hubble telescope sounded like science fiction. It sounded like mad there was, science. There was very little work being done on it, yeah. And it's like the one of the more ambitious scientific achievements that people could think of. Like, hey, let's make a telescope that can see to the edge of the galaxy and yeah. universe. And that's whatever. that's very true. Yeah. So when did you first hear about just that the Hubble was a thing? Well, when I went to work for Lockheed in August of '85, they um, the boss said um, I got something where you look at it. I looked at it. Then I refined some paperwork. And he said, "You're going over here." I went to work for a guy, and uh, and uh, he said, uh, "Okay, I want you to, <laughs> I want you to, make, to take care of this." I think because I was older, I think because I had a, I was in the army and I had a lot of experience. I ended up uh, being in charge of that. Uh, okay, for- <laughs> okay, time out. <laughs> Too many pronouns. When you say. I ended up being in charge of that. Oh. Are we talking about you're in charge of? What I'm in charge of is I'm to make sure that all of the components on the Hubble Space Telescope could be replaced on orbit. I also... Uh, <laughs> Patrick have, and I are both grinning and <laughs> nodding. <laughs> that is the most boss sentence I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I also trained the astronauts to go up and fix it. Now, a lot, that involved uh, being in the neutral buoyancy lab where they put on their suit and then my job was to make sure that that mock-up in the water was exactly like it was on orbit so you've told me this story before but when you got there how many interchangeable parts are on the hubble um, or in the plans and when you got oh, there yeah. was the hubble like a physical thing or is yeah, it all it still? was physical thing, okay but uh there was probably 14 initially 
And you, uh, your made, team added? Uh, over 52, I think, somewhere in there. So you're, you're designing parts that can just be unplugged and plugged in. So it, I mean, in my mind now, I, I studied uh, biblical studies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have no idea. But you know, when you're a kid and you get those little electronic sets where it's like you plug in the circuit, the, the, the transformers and whatever circuitry in the right order, and then the light comes on. So you're like designing modules we're, that can be unplugged actually, when they break and plug back in. We put CAPTI fasteners on uh, the boxes of the components so that you wouldn't have to worry about when you took it out, it'd float away. You had to make sure <laughs> you had to make sure it was there. You had to make sure that it would fit in a box so that the crew could take it out. Yeah. You were able to, to so you wanted to make sure that you made connectors so that the connectors could be handled by the astronaut with their large hands. You wanted to make mm. sure that the components had the numbers on them so that you plug the right one in the right thing. Huh. Part one goes into part yeah. one. <laughs> part one goes into one A. Uh, yeah. that um that and, uh, you know, uh, th this is how you take this apart. This is how you do this. Uh, you just, all of the, all of the components, we had very specific, we, my team, very specifically, how you took that box out and how many turns you had to take it and what torque you had to take it to yeah. take it apart. It sounds so simple. Well, that's not the word. <laughs> that was not what I was going to say. It sounds like a mad scientist to me. But it sounds so exciting to be thinking about what the Hubble's actually getting to do and to be a part of something that there's not a thinking person in the on the planet that has not seen pictures from the Hubble telescope. I mean, it really has been a scientific, like, like cultural altering so much of what we know about the universe is because the Hubble took a picture of it. Yeah, we were, it was designed to be f no more than 15 years. And let's see, we went up 1999. Uh, it's 20, um, it'll be 30 years next year. So you started working on it in 1985 and it mm -hmm. launched in 1999. Mm -hmm. And and it's just design and trial and error and stuff not working and redesigning it. And that's what that... Well, the components that like. worked out on orbit, we had to, to you know, we had to, to teach the crew where it was to how to take it out, how to put it apart. I, I had unlimited uh, access, and the, the the all of the astronauts paid attention, uh, believed in what I told them. Yeah, I, that I had a rapport with them that others did not have anywhere near. I think we're back to you care for people. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, that works in any context. Caring for people works on a football field in Lawton, and it works in orbit. <laughs> and you've got that. So uh, is there any part of you that kind of wishes you had gone up? No. No? You didn't want to do that? No. That was for other people. If you gave me the option of going up on orbit or flying low level across the country, I'd fly low level across yeah, the country. Yeah. Uh, that's You know, a helicopter is one of those things where you go... You don't immediately, when you're like 10 years old, go, I want to fly a helicopter. But as a as a grown person, you think about what would be the coolest thing to actually be the pilot of. And a helicopter is pretty awesome. Well, you can do so many you things. You can do so many things with it. That's right. You can fly at three feet. Plus Airwolf. Do you remember Airwolf? <laughs> yes. I mean, that was appointment television when I was a kid. You can do so much. Uh, and in fact, when... What surprised me was when Notre Dame 
uh, oh, yeah. was on fire, why they didn't go get a bucket mm-hmm. and fly over it and drop it. And their answer was, that somebody asked that question, their answer was that it, um, that it would yeah. do damage a lot of stuff on the inside that wasn't getting damaged. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know. So but, so what's it like work, working with uh, astronauts? Uh, there were some ego people. Uh, but 99% of them were really good people. Uh, a lot of them, the pilots and the, are all um, Air Force or Navy. Yeah. Um, the uh, the EVA people were just, uh, you know, doctor degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were... I just had a great time. One of them would like to work on old cars, and whenever we finished uh, doing the neutral buoyancy lab and we had a weekend or something, he and I'd go around to the shops and look at that. Uh, Kathy Sullivan, who was here, yeah. who you met. Um, yeah. uh, Kathy and I are just we we just bonded. A, yeah, dear friends. Bruce McCandless. Uh, you just you just keep naming all of the people. Uh, and I would tell war stories too, which you're familiar with, I've and heard they they would all laugh. Uh, yeah. And particularly the ones that were in New York, I told them, you know, hey, I've flown under the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, and, that's and, cool. You know, how did you do? Well, you know, I did this and that and so and this and so. Uh, but uh, they all, uh, I just had. And then the interesting aspect: whenever a new crew left, uh-huh. the old crew briefed them, ah, and I okay. got briefed. I got mine is, hey, if you run into any problem, go talk to him. Uh-huh. So. Um, I mean, to work on something like the Hubble telescope sounds like such a once in a hundred generations kind of opportunity. You know what I mean? Like that, that really is cutting edge, not just like scientific discovery, but cutting edge technology, cutting edge engineering. And I just think, man, you had such a heart for math you know, like loved, like I'm going to spend my life as a math teacher. If you would have gone back and told that kid, how about this? <laughs> You're going to apply this math brain of yours to taking pictures of the edge of the universe. Yeah. How it, cool would, would that, that be? It, you know, if you stop and look, I never thought I'd be in California. Yeah. Mm. I, I tried to get to San Francisco and the army several times. No. And, you know, I had a very good the good Lord c- kind of led me the right way because came out here uh, that that just the Hubble opened up and uh, there was a slot that said, get in there and do that. So. Was your job there? So it sounds like it was a mixture of management, which you were trained for yeah. in, in the army and math, like engineering, which was a passion for you. Um, I I, I didn't use as much math, and if you were to ask me right now to multiply, I'd probably fail. <laughs> I think that's most engineers. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll build a suspension bridge in my spare time, but I have no idea what seven times eight is. <laughs> but uh, actually, uh, yeah, uh, I, I never thought that I would be here, and I really, once I got involved in it, um, I just thought that, hey. And I, I really do. And as you know, I make presentations to yep. colleges, to schools, to churches, to various and sundry uh, groups um, that uh, are around the Lion Club, the Rotary mm-hmm. Club. I've got one in June uh, for uh, the uh, for a club out in the Pebble Beach. So yeah. you know, it, 
it just always stays that way. Uh, I enjoy it in the kids because yeah. that's. It's never going to be not interesting. That's true. What are, I mean, I, obviously this is an audio thing and so we can't show pictures, but are there a couple of pictures from the Hubble that have been like transformative, like these are the most special things? I, there there are a, a ton of them. I always, around here, because one of the the stars that blew up and spread out and uh, it looks like a butterfly. So you always mm-hmm. say, That's, oh, here's Pacific, since you guys <laughs> Pacific Grove, this is here. Uh, mm-hmm. The huge uh, dust that's uh, in the, uh, the, the, uh, the pictures that are taken with Eagle Nebulae, those are, you know, they build stars inside of that. Uh. And, and then they put them, put them out. And then the ones that uh, uh, have blown up and then you start wondering about, okay, you know, how do you do dark holes? What do you do uh, black holes? So what yeah. do you do with... Uh, all of this stuff and how come this one is acting this way yet you don't ever know even the scientists are just love it yeah yeah it is the it's some of the most interesting stuff like there's so uh few times where like we've kind of gotten rid of wonder yeah because we want to explain everything fair (laughs) enough we we like we like knowing how stuff works and but in knowing how stuff works there's like that childlike wonder is kind of hard to come by as an adult. And and like when you talk about pictures of nebula and stars being created and that there's some there's some wonder there. I, if I could, uh, when Linda and I went on a cruise and I wore my my shirt that had the Hubble on it. And we were on one of these small islands that uh, had been some sort of a fort or something from uh, a long time ago. And it was in out on the Pacific and I was walking it was a very small place probably not much bigger than two blocks mm-hmm. and we had walked down just to look through town and this lady who was carrying a stick with fruit on both ends passed me hmm. and she laid down her stuff came up and tapped me on the shoulder and says what is that and I said well that's my Hubble Space Telescope and she says she gets up every day and goes on the internet to see what's <laughs> new and then she began to ask me questions and you know the the ship gives you five whistles means you got five six minutes mm-hmm. so i'm walking in this way and this lady's asking me questions i when we got to the ship i thought she was actually going to get on the ship <laughs> really but she absolutely loved it she knew what, about it mm-hmm. and when uh i if i if i had another shirt i'd have given her the shirt but i didn't do that at that time so so what state is is that field in right now? Is the Hubble still absolutely working great? Yeah, and there's no are there plans to bring it down or in the in the future? Uh, a bad day whenever it uh, it dies mm-hmm. on orbit, we will fly a rocket up and put it uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. Uh, put a rocket on it and then mm-hmm. splash splash it in the ocean because if you remember in Skylab. A big chunk of metal came through a house down in Australia. So <laughs> trying it, to avoid it, that, it would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, would it would burn up, yeah. uh, but not completely, and uh. we would still get some of the same things. So it'll be shot in the Pacific. And since you know, I live close there, I've offered to put it in my backyard, but they, NASA says no. Is that right? I don't know why they. I don't know why they. Uh, uh, seems like so, offer. so just so we, so I, you can tell this story for other people here. You saw. All of the space shuttle launches? Not all of them. All but of ours. Lot. All of the Hubbles, yeah. All of the Hubbles. And some of the others, yeah. Yeah. Like you were there the 
when the Challenger exploded. I was. Like standing there. Yeah. Uh, we, we had a meeting, and huh. we walked outside and... And so, there was. Yeah. How did, how, what was... Well, you always, anytime you see a disaster like that, you, particularly in that arena, you just, you know, you say... It's just tragic. Yeah, and if you knew, I didn't know any of those people, mm. and I didn't know any of the Columbia people either. Uh, mm. I had met some of them, but, uh, you know, I always, whenever the guys I dealt with, whenever they launch again, mm-hmm. I'm sitting there like that with yeah. my fingers crossed and my teeth gritted to make sure they get up alive. Yeah, it's still like... It's still dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous. There, there, There's a, a level of bravery in those men and women that... That or stupidity. That you, <laughs> let you say that. It's a, a, a key combination. Yeah. <laughs> I think bravery is what overcomes the other one or something. I don't know. Well, Ron, it's, uh, you know how much I love you and what you mean to, to this church. And I so appreciate you coming in and talking. Can we, can we finish just talking about hope? You're a pretty hopeful guy. What gives you hope? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, Honest and truly, I've been in this church since 1978. Mm-hmm. I would like to see his church grow. That's mm-hmm. my hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also hope uh, that, uh, and my kids are growing up, and I'm very proud of my kids. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they, that their kids are, will do this, that same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the hope. I'd hope this country had turned back to Christianity. I, mm-hmm. uh, it's. I, I see a lot of stupidity everywhere, uh, and uh, I just I would like to see the country go back where it counts. And you know, we were talking about when I was young, the the, the country was different. If you mm. had a problem, you went and worked it, and, and then you left and 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 worked together. And mm. we don't have that now. Mm. That's that that's my hope. Yeah. Well, I'm with you, Ron. Thank you so much for uh, for being a guest and for being my friend and. Really, you know, I remember if I could just tell one of my favorite Ron stories. I remember the first, I think it was the first day I was in the office here that you came in and sat across from my desk and, and, uh, you said, Hey, uh, this is the kind of stuff I like to do. Uh, I, I, I visit people who are, can't get to church anymore, kind of the shut ins and, and I visit them every Monday and, I pray with them and uh, serve communion to them. And then I, I also, and you know, rattled off some more things, the, the ushering stuff and the deacon stuff and all that. And then you said, but, um, but if you want me to quit all that, I will. And I, <laughs> I remember going, no, no, no. Like that's, you're pastoring this church, man. And, uh, and I need you to keep doing it. And you have continued to pastor this church. And, and, you know, I don't think that um, there's, there's not anybody that, knows you that doesn't feel like they can count on you and if you're looking for a definition of what a godly man needs to be um it might be that 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 you are are faithful and trustworthy and loving and caring and and we all know it and uh so i really appreciate your friendship and what you mean to me thanks for coming in brother you bet. It was enjoyable. All right. All right. So uh, Patrick's over there. Patrick Hawk's on the pulling the levers and turning the knobs. And we've been with Ron Sheffield. Have a great whatever today is. 